Bibles with you this morning, open up to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we're in chapter 2, and Lord willing, we're going to finish up chapter 2 today as we're looking at this last little section, the last three verses of John chapter 2. I've entitled today's message as Unbelieving Believers. And so we'll see, or maybe I got it backwards here, believing unbelievers, right? Believing unbelievers, John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And you'll kind of get the gist of what I'm meaning by that as we dive into this text together. And so John 2, 23 through 25, we read this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are Lord. We thank you for the privilege of coming to sing these songs to you, to offer the praise of our heart to the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're humbled to read even this text today that many would believe in you. Some of these because of signs, others because of the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you know what's within a man. We stand bare and humble before you this morning that you would look at our soul and help us to see our great need of redemption through the grace of God, through the gospel of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, many of you, <clears throat> I'm sure, are familiar with Billy Graham, the great work of evangelism he's done over the last century. Many of you may not know that he was also working together with his best friend at the time, a gentleman by the name of Charles Templeton. They both became famous, really, in the 1940s, when both of their ministries began to really stride uh, towards a more of an evangelistic uh, approach to reaching the masses, and they were close friends. And many even said that of the two, Templeton was the one that was thought to overturn the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how come you never heard of Templeton today? And the reason for that, sadly, is that he ended up leaving the Christian faith. He ended up walking away from Christ. He ended up being a self-proclaimed atheist. And it was in 1982, though still an atheist, that he said of Billy Graham, quote, there is no feigning in him. He believes what he believes with an invincible innocence. He is the only mass evangelist I would trust. Tilpleton later died in 2001 at the age of 86. And shortly before he died, he ended up writing a book, one of the most heartbreaking books, I believe, that exists today, and it was entitled Farewell to God. I haven't read the book, but I read excerpts of it this week, obviously, as I was thinking about this sermon. And here's an excerpt from that book about a pivotal conversation that he had with Billy Graham as he was leaving the faith. And the context is, is that Charles Templeton wanted to go to Princeton as more of a critical thinker, more of a liberal thinker, thinker about the things of Christianity, and he tried to get Billy Graham to go with him. So please keep in mind that this is Charles Templeton's account of the conversation he had with Billy Graham. Here's what he writes in his book. All our differences came to a head in a discussion which, better than anything I know, explains Billy Graham and his phenomenal success as an evangelist. In the course of our conversation, I said, but Billy, it's impossible to, to uh, it's, in, 
it's, it's simply not possible any longer to believe. For instance, the biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days or a thousand years or more. It was evolved over millions of years. It is not a matter of speculation. It's a demonstrable fact. I don't accept that, Billy said. And there are reputable scholars who don't accept that either. What are these scholars? Who are they, I said, men in conservative Christian colleges? Most of them, yes, he said, but that is not the point. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. I've discovered something in my ministry. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and say, God says, or the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me. There are results. Wiser men than you and I have been arguing questions like this for centuries. I don't have the time or the intellectual ability to examine all the sides of the theological dispute, so I've decided once and for all to stop questioning and accept God and the Bible as his word. But Billy, Templeton protested, you cannot do that. You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life. Do it and you begin to die. It's intellectual suicide. I don't know about anyone else, replied Billy, but I've decided that that's the path for me. And I think this really starts to get at the heart of a real sad occurrence. These two friends, apparently both believers, who are having this argument about whether or not they should trust in God and the Bible alone, or should they be enamored with all the, the PhD philosophers of the world who began to claim other things that the Bible might be hinting at, which just really aren't true. It, it, this, 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 this discussion they had uh, ends their friendship. They have a breach in their friendship between two men, one who left Christ never to come back, and one who went on by the grace of God to at least in part change the world. Templeton, in his own story, he makes it plain that he never truly reached the point of where he was intellectually convicted of the truthfulness of Christianity. In order to be a Christian, you have to be convicted in your core that the Bible is true, that Christ is who he said he was. In fact, the Reformers sometimes call that a census. A census is something that we assent to, but it is more than that. A census represents the conviction that we have in our minds. Assent of the mind is vital to our faith. It leads to what the Reformers also called fiducia, which is uh, referring to personal trust and reliance, the idea of faith, right? It is the faith that perseveres through all trials, through all doubts, and through all of Satan's attacks. And Graham, according to this testimony, had enough confidence in the Bible to at least take it at face value. He was not going to be the eternal tire kicker with regard to Christianity, and sure, he could have waited like Templeton until every possible objection to the faith was answered, but this would amount to a failure of modernistic irrationality. We can never have all of our questions answered. But at some point, we must learn to trust in the sufficiency of the Word of God. We must learn to look beyond our circumstances and beyond intellect and look to the risen Christ. And there's a time when we, like Billy Graham, must stop the kind of questioning that comes prior to our faith. We must learn to trust God with our whole heart. 
And this morning, I really want to examine two types of faith. And we're going to look at a, a faith that is conjured up by man and a faith that is divinely given by God. We're going to look at a faith that is based on the external things of this world and a faith that is working on the inner person of the heart. We're going to look at the difference between a faith that appears to be religious and a faith that focuses on a true relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm curious what kind of faith you have this morning. Maybe you've all known a friend who's walked away from the faith, and you've all known somebody in your life who went AWOL and went away from Christ. And my fear today is that that might become you, that you could be here in this church. You could have been raised in the family of God. You could have known all the right answers your whole life, and yet you're faking it. Somewhere in your heart, you have doubts And instead of taking those doubts to the Word of God and to prayer for real answers from the only authority that exists in this world, you began to be enamored, again, with different theologians that are liberal who deny the gospel. And you began to be enamored with philosophers who teach philosophy that would be from human wisdom. And this morning, we're going to see that the only faith that can really save you is a faith that's given to you by God. As we look at this subject of two-faced this morning. Let me just give you two simple headings as we look at these three verses. The first, you see it there in your outline. It's just this, not all faith is saving faith. And in verse 23, it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now, let me just bring you up to speed a little bit in case you haven't been with us consistently. John chapter 2, we have Jesus turning the water into wine. He did that miracle at Cana at the wedding. It was his first miracle that he did. And after that, he went to Capernaum just for a short while with his mom and his brothers and sisters. And then he came down to Jerusalem. And we looked a few weeks ago about how when he got to Jerusalem, he began to walk around the temple. And he saw how the temple had been desecrated by the Jewish people who were buying and selling and doing commerce in the temple that should have been consecrated to the holiness of God. And so Jesus walks around and he makes a whip and he drives out all the money changers and he turns over all the coins and he gets rid of all the animals and he says, my father's house will be a house of prayer. And it was zeal that consumed his heart. And the Pharisees looked at him and said, what right do you have to come into our house? What sign do you show us that you would have authority to do this? And they're looking for a sign. That's kind of the theme that we're on here in chapter 2. They want to see another sign. They want to see some type of miracle that proves that Jesus has the authority to do what he's doing. And in chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them and he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, what does that mean? We discussed last week, they were confused, thinking he was talking about the literal temple that took them 46 years to build. Jesus, however, according to verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body, and basically the sign that Jesus gave to them was the sign of the resurrection. He doesn't give them another sign to prove that he's God, greater than the only sign that can prove that, which is, crucify me, and in three days I'll be raised from the dead. And yet we have people who walk around this planet, who are always looking for a sign. They always want to see something else God would do and some other reason that they can believe other than the gospel itself. People are always looking for a sign. And Jesus says, the only sign I would ever give you to cause you to believe in me would be the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we read here in verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his names when they saw the signs he was doing. 
So you might start to say, well, Adam, what are you talking about? It says they believed because he did these other signs. And you're saying the only sign that would cause belief is the crucifixion and resurrection. And what I'm saying to you is if you look at verse 24, you start to realize that the belief, the faith that the uh, people had in verse 23 apparently wasn't real saving faith because in verse 24 we see the contrast. It says, but, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. That word entrust is the same word for the word believe in verse 23, the word pistuo, the idea of believing, having faith. And so basically here's what Jesus is saying. I don't believe you guys. Many people were claiming belief, but he did not entrust himself to them. It's like they say they believe in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe in them. Why doesn't he believe in them? Verse 24, again, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, here's the reason for the title. Here we have these believing unbelievers. We have people who claim to believe. They claim to have faith. They claim to have faith, according to verse 23, according to the signs they saw. And yet Jesus says, no, 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 you guys don't have it yet. And that's kind of the whole point of this passage here, is that we, I'm going to show you five types of faith that are not really saving faith. The first one from this passage in verse 23, and let's say it this way, your first blank if you are taking notes, some faith is based on signs. Some faith is based on signs. <clears throat> However, the theme in the New Testament is don't base your faith on signs. In fact, turn over to John chapter 4, verse 48, and we see this little interaction between Jesus and an official whose son was ill. And so Jesus said to him in John 4, 48, unless you see signs and wonders you will not believe. Now that actually is not a recommendation of Christ. He's actually rebuking this man for not believing in who he is as the Savior. So in other words, in order to demand signs, or in order to have to believe based on signs or wonders, that's not a true kind of saving faith. It's not a positive thing that Jesus is saying here. And we're reminded last week even how Jesus said in Matthew 16, 4, it's an evil and an adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. Does that make you comfortable being a sign seeker? He's like, no, no, it's an evil and adulterous generation for it seeks for a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Again, the sign of the resurrection that Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, just as Christ would be in the grave for three days and three nights. We explained that last week and then raised from the dead. But many of Jesus' supposed followers were more interested in signs than they were in the Savior. They were enamored with all the things that he did, but they didn't really, really hear his proclamation of the gospel. They were more interested in the outer works of power than the inner works of a transformed heart. They were more interested in making Jesus the physical king of their nation rather than the spiritual king of their own soul. They were impressed by the outside and the external but they didn't really want to see Christ and who he was in all of his glory. In fact, it was after Jesus fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6 where we read this. When the people saw the sign he had done feeding the 5,000, they said, This indeed is the prophet who came into the world. It sounds good. Like, well, maybe they're getting it. But then listen to what they did. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
So let me ask you, did they, did they get saved when they said, oh, we perceive he might be the prophet, you know, the prophet Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18, that there would be one who would come after Moses that would be greater than Moses. Well, apparently they don't really believe Christ because they want to come make him become king physically so that they could whoop up on Rome. Right? They were tired of being oppressed. They wanted a physical military conquering king. So they didn't really understand who Christ really was. And so the Jews kept seeking for a sign, and they keep seeking for a sign. It was after Jesus fed the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8, verse 11, that we read the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and he got into the boat and went onto the other side. Today, people are the same way. They keep seeking for a sign. People keep looking. If they could just see a miracle from God, they would believe. Every skeptic I've ever known would just say, if you just show me some miracle, I'll become a believer. And what we don't understand is God has done the greatest miracle that could ever be done in the death and the resurrection of his Lord. And if I could ever show you a sign that's greater than that, then that's no longer the greatest sign. So you could never just come up with some other sign to cause somebody to believe because if they don't believe the gospel, they will never believe. True saving faith is not based on a miracle. And that's why it drives me crazy Then in so many charismatic churches, they're just looking for another prophecy, another tongue, another miracle. And it's almost as if you've been at any of those services, and I've been to many in my childhood, then that's that's what gets people excited. Oh, God did a miracle today. He healed this person, and he did this, and he did that. It's like, well, what about the excitement of the gospel? What about the excitement of the resurrection? That's what excites me today. I mean, if you get healed by the grace of God, and it's miraculous, Praise the Lord. I'm not saying he can't heal somebody, and I'm not saying he can't do miracles. I'm just saying too many people and too many churches, even on this day, keep seeking a sign. Here's the sign, people. It's the word of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people just say, no, no, I got to see this, and I got to see this, and I got to see this. Listen, if if you're seeking a sign today, that's really an evidence of doubt in your heart. You're a sign seeker. You're doubting God is who he said he is. You're doubting Christ really was resurrected from the dead, and you're doubting God. If you're seeking a sign today, I would say that you are spiritually greedy. You are greedy for more and more and more from God, just like the unbelieving Jews, just like the Pharisees, and you're greedy to see God work in a miraculous way in order for your faith to keep following him. If you're seeking a sign today, then it's got to be continued signs is what keeps you in the faith. You understand that? If, if, if it were signs that got you into the faith, then if the signs run out, what happens to your faith? If the, if the signs stop, then, then do you continue to believe? Because if your belief is based on these signs, and I'm saying that's what verse 23 is saying, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And it's not true saving faith because Christ knows they're not true believers. You know, I try to be a pretty good dad, and I like playing games with my kids, and I like to do a couple of card tricks. I've got like two really good card tricks, maybe a third if I'm doing really good. And so just a couple of weeks ago, we're at the house, and I got the kids, you know, hanging out, and uh, we're playing some games, and I pull out a deck of cards, and I start to show them, you know, the couple of tricks I got up my sleeve, you know, hey, look at this card, you know, is this your card, and all this stuff, and the kids are like, how did you do that? 
And they're just like all interested. And of course, a good dad is going to, you know, not tell them right away and try to do it again and do it again. I mean, eventually you got to tell them, right? Are you the kind of dad who never tells your kids? Right, you got to tell them. I don't like dads like that, all right? But I, I, found, I found out what happened is I, I did my one trick, and then they kind of figured it out, and I showed them how to do it. And I did my second trick. I kind of tried to do my third trick, and it wasn't that good. And then the kids were disinterested. They were like, all right, Dad, let's go, let's go over here. They just want to go do something else. Why? Because I ran out of signs. I ran out of card tricks. I had all their attention while I'm doing the tricks, and once I'm done, they're gone, completely disinterested. And that's what happens in churches today. That's what happens in our world today. People look for these signs, and as soon as the signs run out, they bolt. They run away from God. And so we got to be careful this morning that your faith isn't built on signs, plural, but built on the sign, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could take the same approach to the second blank there in your outline. Some faith is based on blessings. Some faith is based on blessings. In fact, look at John chapter 6, verses 24 and following. It says, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in their boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So what is he saying in this verse? He's like, hey, actually, it wasn't the sign. It wasn't the fact it was miraculous. It was because you got to eat some free food, right? You got free food. Like, all you got to do is say free food over here at the, at the Master's University, and they'll all come, right? Free food. <clears throat> what are they coming for? Well, it's not my preaching, because they don't come except when we offer free food. I'm just kidding. Now, if you're, if you're a Master's college student, we love you. I'm just kind of picking on you some. But why are you here? Yeah, okay, so anyway, <clears throat> but the, the point is these people, it wasn't so much the sign itself as they got their bellies filled. And it's kind of like, well, if blessings is what gets you in the door, you know, your job's going well, your, your mortgage payment's being paid every month, your cars are running well, you're, you're doing good. And well, I mean, what happens when the blessings go away? What happens when you get too sick to work? What happens when the economy takes a turn for the worse? What happens when you get sick? What happens when you got to sell your house? What happens when you got to downsize? Do you still worship God? Do you still praise him? Because there are many in the health wealth movement again that would say, if you don't have prosperity, then, then, then there's something wrong with you. And yet you've got to realize that the ultimate reason for following God and having a true saving faith cannot be for the good things that he gives to you. Right? We're not here to seek God's hand. We're here to seek his face. We're not here to seek external things that he may give or he may withhold, but we're here to seek him. We're here to say, no matter what, I'm satisfied with you. If I'm hungry or if I'm filled, I come to the living God because I need Christ. It's not about external blessings. Another type of faith could be based on knowledge. Some people just get into all kind of theological arguments and all kind of, you know, learning and learning and learning, but never really learning. It's not about being super smart that makes you a Christian. This text here in James 2 talks about the importance of obeying. If you have real faith, the proof is really in how you live out your faith. And so in James 2.17, you know this text, it says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, he's saying, if you have true saving faith, then your life is going to show it by obedience and by doing good works in Christ's power for his own glory. 
And if you're not doing those good works in your faith, your mental assent to the gospel is no good. And then he goes on to say, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the, what, demons believe. Did you know that demons are better theologians than many Christians? They understand the divinity of Christ. They know where they're coming from, and they know where they're going. They know that Christ is the son of the living God. And yet they're not going to heaven. Just because they believe, just because they have that knowledge. There's so many people, again, who have knowledge, but they're full-blown liberals. And I don't mean that politically. I mean, theologically, they don't really believe the gospel. And they start to redact and reduce the truth of God's word to explain it away. I mean, I just heard someone explain just this past week that, oh, Jesus didn't really feed the 5,000. What happened is the boy showed up with his lunch, and he had the loaves and the fishes. And when people saw his generosity... They brought out their lunch, and then everybody brought out their lunch, and they had a big potluck, and that's how he fed the 5,000. I mean, give me a break. You know, it's like you either believe in God or you don't. Why even claim Christ if you can't believe in the salvation of Christ coming through the crucifixion and the resurrection? I'm just trying to say too many people, I think, base too much faith on knowledge. I'm not saying we shouldn't have a knowledge of the truth. You must understand the gospel, okay? But I'm saying that that has to be divine revelation by God. It's not something that you figure out by going to seminary. Right? A fourth kind of faith that we need to be aware of is some faith is based on an outward profession. Some faith is based on an outward profession. How about Luke 6, 46? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, do, and not do what I tell you? <clears throat> In other words, a lot of people claim Christ. Catholics claim Christ. Mormons claim Christ. Jehovah Witnesses claim Christ. Uh, some Hindu faith would claim Christ as, as, as one of many gods, right? I mean, so many people claim Christ, but just because they claim Christ doesn't necessarily mean they understand saving faith. You could be evangelical and claim Christ, and it doesn't mean that you know Christ. That's why in this text, you know what he says here about, uh, <clears throat> about having a firm foundation. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell and the ruin of that house was great. In other words, do you just profess Christ or do you have the foundation and the bedrock of the Lord Jesus Christ? I can't tell you how many times in a part of my life was in a Southern Baptist church where it was all about saying the sinner's prayer. It was all about how many professions were made in the service? How many professions were made this week? How many people made their decision? And that may be a time and place where some people legitimately come to Christ, but I'm just saying not everybody who makes a profession is saved. Not everybody who says they believe, believe. Not, just because you made a profession, you, you don't have security based on the fact that you said a sinner's prayer. You can't look back to your mom and your mom say, well, I was there the day you came to Christ. You're a Christian and get your security from her affirmation of your profession. You understand what I'm saying? You have to come to the living God and say, God, I'm broke. I'm dead. I'm on my way to hell. I need grace and I need true saving faith that comes through the gospel alone. Not just by professing it, you have to have a true foundation and your faith built on 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, I'm not here to throw stones at anybody, but you know this happens all the time in the world that we live in where people claim Christ and then they walk away from Christ. It was even the famous actor Brad Pitt who was raised by two devout Baptist parents who sang in a church choir, got baptized and joined the church. And yet later in his life, he says, I'm probably 20% atheist and 80% agnostic. So my question is, well, what happened? I mean, what, what happened? What happened was he was never saved. What happened is these people who go out from us, 1 John 2.19 says, they were never part of us. They never had true saving faith because it was always based on something else. It was always based on whether it was a miracle, whether it was knowledge, whether it was doing the right thing, whether it was experience, or here's the last one here. Some faith is based on external appearance, but it lacks fruit. This is just simply the parable of the sower, or I prefer to call it the parable of the soils, where Jesus tells the story about the farmer who spread the seed out, and some landed on the path, and it was taken up by the bird, and some landed on, on rocky soil, and it sprung up, but when the sun came out, it didn't have deep enough roots, and so it withered. Some, some was, uh, went, went into the thorns, and it came out and started to grow, and then the thorns choked it out. You remember this parable? And then some fell on the good soil, right? And as he explains that a little bit later in Matthew 13, 18, he says, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, and yet no root, has no root in himself, but endures it for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and proves it unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. And all I'm trying to say with this parable, as Christ already teaches us, is sometimes you have the appearance of life, but you have no fruit. Sometimes you have the appearance of you know what you're supposed to say. You know how to answer those questions in your small group. You know how you're supposed to act in Sunday school. You know how to say a prayer if somebody asks you to say the blessing on the spot. You know all of that. But if you really get down to the heart of hearts, there's no absolute surrender to God. There's no true bearing of fruit, of spiritual truth in your life. It's all a fake and it's all a facade. And I'm saying to you, this is what happened to Charles Templeton. And this is what's happened to friends in your life. If you had a friend who you thought knew Christ and walked away from the faith. I have. I had a best friend in college. My first two years of college, this guy was my best friend. We wept together on our knees praying for revival in our church. Just this guy and I at times would go out door-to-door evangelism. We had the privilege of preaching to youth groups in our area in central Georgia where I grew up. This guy went off to a Christian college. I ended up going to PA school. This guy goes to seminary. I start working as a PA. And the next thing I know, this guy walks away from the faith. He divorces his wife, and he leaves the faith. And I couldn't believe it. 
It was one of my other friends who called me and said, hey, you'll never guess what happened. So I call my friend. He won't return my call. I tried to reach out through Facebook where he was posting all the stuff, and it became apparent that he was a skeptic. He was making fun of God. He was ridiculing preachers of the gospel. What happened? What happened to Charles Templeton? What happened to my friend? They were never saved. They never really were saved by the grace of God. And I'm telling you, it happens all the time. You know people in your own heart and mind that you grew up with that you would have never thought walked away, and yet they walked away. It's just like these people in verse 23. Apparently, they believed in his name when they saw signs, but Jesus knows that they never truly were saved. And I'm just here to tell you this morning, if that's you and you're scared right now, and you ought to be, like in a sense, there's a, a healthy fear of like, God, God forbid that would happen to me. God forbid that would happen to my spouse or my child or my family member. God forbid. And part of it is we have security, but it's not in these other signs that Jesus has done. It's in the gospel itself. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are a child of God. But it's by looking back and back and back at the gospel of grace and understanding that we have to be transformed by his power and not our own. And that kind of leads us to our next heading here, verses 24, 25. Not all followers are faithful followers. In verses 24 and 25 again, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about a man for he himself knew what was in man. <clears throat> now I want to focus on this part of the sermon about Jesus's divine knowledge, knowing who his true followers were and who were they were not. Okay, this didn't surprise him. He was never surprised when, when someone fell, all right? So in here in this uh, sub-point, it says some followers fell away. And if you look at the first blank there, some claim the father but reject the son. So this would be one for sure sign of people who acted like they were, quote, believers, and yet they rejected the gospel. And in John 5.42, Jesus says to a group of Jewish people who apparently appeared like they wanted to learn and follow him. But this is what Jesus says to them. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Now, how does Christ know that? Because he's divine. He knows all things. These people weren't fooling him. He says, look, I know you don't have the love of God within you. And he goes on to explain it a little further. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, if a Jewish person were to claim they believe in God or they're religious, but they don't believe in Christ as the true expression of the glory of the Father in man form through the incarnation, that Jesus is God, very God, who would die on a cross for sinners and be raised from the dead, then they don't have the love of God in them. Doesn't matter how many people and how many religions would say they love God and have the love of God. If they don't love the glory of God in Christ, then they will not follow and they will fall away. Maybe another one would be number two. Some claim to follow but reject the words of eternal life. And it was in John chapter 6 where Jesus gives this really bare bones teaching of unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And basically what Jesus is calling for, again, is absolute surrender. Unless you give it all up and you do everything to follow me with your whole heart, then you have no part in me. And what happened was is that many of the disciples walked away. Right at that moment, they said, this is a hard saying. 
But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, and then he talks about uh, you know, the fact that you have to believe in order to be saved. In other words, Jesus knew who truly believed in him and who did not. And those who truly believed in him believed the words of eternal life. Those who did not walked away. Another one would be number three, some claim the right to accuse Jesus. And in Matthew 9, there's the story of Jesus healing the paralytic who his friends let down uh, the paralytic, you remember? And he says, at first he says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And so some of the Jews were like, I don't like the fact he's saying your sins are forgiven. That's blasphemy. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, again, the divine knowledge of Christ, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? And he condemns them for judging him, for telling this paralytic that his sins are forgiven. In other words, if any of us today <clears throat> would begin to be skeptical that the words of Christ are true, or that any page of this book is true, that Jesus is who he said he was, and that he tells us what is right and what is wrong, as the entire Bible does. I mean, I've, I've had people in my office that I've talked to to say, well, I believe in Christ, but I don't believe it's right what he says here about those who are living in immorality. I don't believe that it's right here that he's really the only way to heaven. I don't think that he's right right here when he starts condemning other people. Well, then you don't really believe Christ. You're actually accusing Christ of saying things and doing things that aren't true. And so I'm simply trying to say Jesus knows who those people are, those who say they follow, but they're not really following. But Jesus also knows his true followers. And that's our last point here. Some followers stay faithful. Which followers stay faithful? Those who he knows those who he saves, those who he opens their hearts to the true gospel, people like Simon and Nathaniel and Nicodemus. Number one here, Jesus knows his faithful followers. Remember how Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, but when Jesus saw Peter, he said, you are Simon, the son of John. Jesus already knew him. When Nathaniel was standing out by the fig tree, Jesus said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel said, how do you know me? Jesus said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus knows Nicodemus, as we'll look next week, who comes to him by night and starts to ask some really good questions. And Jesus looks at him and says, are you not the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. I'm just trying to say, Jesus really knows. Nicodemus, by the way, came to be a follower of Christ. I can't wait to look at that text with you next week. But the idea is, Jesus knows. He knows what's in a man. He knows what's in a woman. He knows what's in your heart. He knows all things. You can't hide from God. He knows your secret sin. He knows your struggles. And he knows whether or not you have legitimate saving faith. He knows. You could fool everybody else. I, I had a brother-in-law who walked away from the faith and divorced my sister. After nine years of faking it as a Christian, he went AWOL. It happens all the time. And so the idea is that it should bring comfort to us in case you're wondering, like, well, what if that happens to me? Well, it, bring, it should be comfort that when Christ knows a man or a woman and when Christ calls a man and a woman and when that's evidence, I believe through complete surrender that that faith is not based on a sign or some kind of external evidence. It's just the work of God. It's just God doing it. God just does it. Then, then that person will follow Christ for the rest of his life. And number two says, Jesus knows that his faithful followers will remain with him. Maybe if there's one test, it's remaining faithful for the rest of your life. 
It's not just who are you today, because you could be gone tomorrow. It's who are you today and for the rest of your life, and only the sovereign grace of God can sustain you and that you could persevere because it's a God-given faith, not based on science, not based on your intellect, not based on an external experience, but based on the gospel of Christ. And that's why when some of those disciples, after the hard teaching in John 6, when Jesus says, if you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part of me, some people left, those who didn't have saving faith, but others stayed, right? Others stayed, and those who stayed, Jesus looked at the 12 and says, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? In other words, Jesus even knows in that moment, while twelve stayed, one of them is still false. One of them. Judas Iscariot was never a true believer. One of them was a son of perdition. And Jesus knows all things, right? Number three, Jesus knows that his faithful followers will persevere. In this passage in John 16, he just talks about the fact that, that, again, Jesus knows everything. And the disciples come to know that he knows everything. And um, and the disciples actually say, now that we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you, this is why we believe that you came from God. And then a little bit later in that passage, Jesus again says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And part of what he's saying in that text is a true believer perseveres. Even though there's trials, even though there's tribulations, you don't walk away from God. Not if you have true faith. Because true faith isn't based on your camp experience when you threw a stick in the fire and you thought, oh, I must be a Christian now. No, true faith is based on the sovereign grace of God. And come trials and come tribulations and come whatever comes, you could say like Job, though he slay me, I will still praise him. I will still worship him. He's my God. He saved me. And it's all by his grace. That's the saving faith that God's looking for and that God only can give in the hearts of his people that he calls out of darkness into light. And so if you're here, don't be looking for a sign or a confirmation outside of the gospel itself. In fact, flip over your sheet and see this quote that I gave you at the bottom by William Hendrickson, one of my favorite commentators here on the New Testament commentary on John. This is what he says, kind of summarizing the beginning part of our sermon. Quote, signs are done in order to strengthen true saving faith. Of themselves, they do not create faith. The Holy Spirit must do this. Moreover, once saving faith is present, one will believe in the word of Jesus even when there is no sign. Is that true of you today? That you could say with your whole heart, I believe in the word of God even if I don't see a sign today. And by the way, I think the signs in one sense are all over the place. It's creation. It's common grace. It's the fact that you're alive. It's the fact that he's given you life. It's it's all over the place. But none of those have the power to save a man. Only the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at these take-home questions, let's ask ourselves, what is your faith really based on? Maybe you're here today and you're a young Charles Templeton in the making. You're here and you know 
that you're just putting up a facade. I call you this day to repent of your self-righteousness. Stop trying to get there on your own. Completely surrender to God. Ask Him and beg Him to save you on Christ's merit alone. Number two, how can you keep from being a believing unbeliever? Maybe some of you are too focused on, again, the protocol of what Christianity looks like instead of the Savior Himself. You get too caught up into just getting into, a, again, a religious system of your own making instead of saying, I need God today. God's got to do it. I need him to save me and to sanctify me and to change me. God, you've got to do this instead of just thinking you're going to fake it again until you make it. Or the last one here says, what does Jesus see when he looks within your heart? I mean, he knows. What does he see? Does he see a faith that's based on signs or a faith that's based on knowledge or a faith that's based on some other human thing? Or does he see saving faith that was planted there by himself through the gospel of grace as you turn from your sin and turn to Christ and with your whole heart and trust yourself to him and to him alone? If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I call you this day to place your trust in Christ, not on yourself not on your works, not on your church, not on your habits, not on your rituals, not on your past experiences in Christ this day and every day for the rest of your life. May you look to Christ. Don't be a believing unbeliever. Be a believer who never is brought to unbelief. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the simple yet profound passage of Scripture of these that came to Christ who apparently believed only based on signs, and yet Jesus looked at them and said he would not entrust himself to them because he didn't believe them, because he knew what was within their heart. And I pray, God, as you span over the congregation here today, that I know you know my heart and each heart in this room. And so, God, we open ourselves up bare before you and pray, God, that you would not let us be phony or be fake or believe for the wrong reason or in the wrong thing. God, we want to believe in Christ. Give us that belief. Help our unbelief. Do a special work of grace in each heart, God. Open our understanding by your Holy Spirit. Enlighten our minds. Strike our hearts with the truth of your love for us. Help us not to be distracted by darting our eyes elsewhere thinking there's got to be some other message or some other story or some other event to really grab my attention. May it always be the gospel truth that proves your love for us. Thank you, God, for the privilege of knowing Christ. Help us as a church to make him known by the faith that's evidenced in how we love and respond to your gospel message in this world, in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.